Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Zakari. Good morning. Since it's New Year's Eve, let me be the first to wish everyone a very happy 2020. My name is Frank Zakari, and you're listening to life-altering events on the voiceamerica.com empowerment channel. Now, this is a time of year where most people make promises, or probably better stated, wishes for the upcoming year. The vast majority of these wishes revolve around losing weight, getting in shape, saving money, or maybe getting out of debt. Unfortunately, most of these good intentions are over before Valentine's Day. But there are some things that people hope will occur in this new year that are far more important, more personal, and more life-altering. Let me give you a couple examples. Since my book, When the Wife Cheats, was released, I've spoken to dozens of men and women whose resolution is simply to move on from betrayal. Now, this one's not so easy. I wish I had an answer. Unfortunately, I don't. Another example is there are thousands of parents around the world who are hoping and praying for a cure or some form of relief for their children suffering from neurological disorders such as autism or ADHD. These disorders are often called the invisible disabilities. Now, before we can pick up the pieces and move forward, we have to forgive ourselves. Let me say that again. Forgive yourself. If you are dealing with a failing marriage, you weren't the worst spouse ever. For parents with children suffering from autism or ADHD, you need to forgive yourself. You didn't do anything wrong. Your focus needs to be on your child. Now, I know this is easier said than done, but don't give up. Today is our 24th show. Because of your support, we have over 19,000 listeners in 15 countries. So let me hear from you. Let me share your story with the world. Today, we're going to replay the show that you made the second most listened to episode. This show is called Invisible Disabilities, where you'll discover that angels truly do walk among us. Please enjoy it again. And my wish for you is that 2020 will be the best year of your life. Our topic today is invisible disabilities. Now, what is that? I am, for one, am very excited about today's show. One of the most heartbreaking life-altering events is discovering that your child has been diagnosed with an incurable disease or disability. Then the fear and the panic sets in. As a parent, your world completely falls apart. And then the questions start and the doubt. How did this happen? What did I do wrong? What can I do now? Who do I go through for help? Will my child need full-time caretaker? And then there's some anger. I will not put my child in a home. Will he or she be able to attend school? What kind of school? Will he be able to live an independent life? How will my child survive after I die? And I'm sure for parents who have been through this, there are many, many others. Some disabilities are obvious. People can see a child in a wheelchair, a child with spinal bifida or cerebral palsy, and maybe even understand what the family is going through. But what about the, the invisible disabilities? The neural development disorders like autism or ADHD. The outward signs are not obvious. We have all seen people react as if a child with these disorders is simply unruly or the parents can't control the child. These reactions add to the already overwhelming stress for these parents. I know this stress because my son is affected. The latest estimates on autism are staggering. It affects one in 59 children in the United States. This is an increase of over 30% from the one in 88 
reported in 2008, and more than double the one in 500 since 2000. According to parents' reports, 6.4 million children, that's 11% of this age group from four, from 4 to 17, have been diagnosed with ADHD. The rates are increasing at an average of approximately 5% per year since 2003. Something is seriously wrong. These numbers are staggering, but there's hope, and this hope is coming out of the research, testing, and development at the University of California, Davis, MIND Institute. That's MIND, M-I-N-D. Now, listen closely here. If you don't believe that angels walk among us, then you have never interacted with the MIND Institute. These people are truly angels. We are blessed today to be joined by Dr. Leonard Abadudo, the director of the UC Davis Mind Institute. He is an endowed chair in the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences of the School of Medicine. We have Dr. Julie Schweitzer, who's the director in Attention Impulsivity Regulation, that's AIR and ADHD program at UC Davis. And she's the co-center mentoring director of the Mind Institute. And our third guest is Dr. Judy Vanderwater, who is investigating the maternal immune systems as it relates to autism spectrum disorders with emphasis on maternal autoantibodies to fetal brain development. Now, that's a mouthful, folks. Now, we can spend the next hour just reading their credentials. Needless to say, we have three of the greatest minds in neurological disorder on air with you today. Dr. Abadito, let me start with you. Tell us about the Mind Institute. How did this start? When did it start? And, and a little bit of background on this. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the very kind uh, introduction. Uh, where we appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Um, so I think the Mind Institute's beginning really uh, are consistent with the theme of your show in terms of life-altering events. The uh, Institute really began uh, as the uh, idea of a group of parents in the early 1990s, um, most of whom uh, had sons with autism, as it happens. And I think, like a lot of parents, they were motivated uh, to make life better for their uh, children and for other children affected by autism and and other neurodevelopmental conditions. And so they uh, began to plan and uh, theorize in terms of what would be the best approach to helping uh, families that are affected by autism, uh, and they what they recognized was that, first of all, there was very little research uh, in the early 1990s. As you pointed out, uh, autism used to be considered a rare condition, um, and uh, so they saw very little research. They saw very little collaboration across disciplines trying to kind of pool all of their resources and, and their approaches to kind of best understand uh, the condition and, therefore, how we might uh, make life better. They also had, uh, they saw really pretty poor uh, delivery of health care and other services to families that were affected by autism, uh, with a lot of families being kind of told all of the negative things and, and that, uh, you know, everything from uh, your child will never do this and never do that to the best thing you can do is put them in an institution and get on with your lives. And so I think that... Um, kind of motivated by all these negatives, the families really wanted to make life more positive. And, and their idea was to create an institute that was really focused on research, clinical care, and education, and outreach that was really family-centered, collaborative, and interdisciplinary, where everyone really worked together to uh, uh, make life better for families. And so, long story short, they were able to kind of create a collaboration between families, uh, the University of California system, and with great support from University of California Davis, and the state legislature uh, here in California. And so there was legislation passed in 1998 that effectively created the Mind Institute as an administrative unit within the University of California Davis. Uh, And we're located here at the uh, School of Medicine and Health Campus in Sacramento. And so we uh, have two buildings that opened in 2003. And so we really, in in many respects, I think we reflect the parents' adaptation 
to the challenges they faced uh, in, a, in a really positive way. And we kind of reflect their hope for how things will be done right, both in terms of research, clinical care, and kind of training the next generation of scientists and, and uh, healthcare providers. So that's kind of our history. I hope that is a helpful background. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. The growth and the success of this program is uh, is truly amazing. I have been fortunate enough to come to some of the events. Uh, describe some of the outreach and the events that you do within the community. Sure. Uh, there are a number of things that we do um, uh, to really kind of help educate families, teachers, professionals, and others so that we really kind of impact uh, lives of families affected by autism and other uh, neurodevelopmental conditions in, in their communities, kind of broadly defined. So we do things like uh, we have a uh, annual summer institute on neurodevelopmental disabilities, which brings together professionals, researchers, clinicians, educators, and family members to kind of share their experiences and provide kind of uh, guidance to others about best practices. Uh, and that's an annual event um, where uh, families can attend. In fact, we have family scholarships. We have teachers, uh, pediatricians, psychologists will all attend. And this past year, we had uh, over 300 people in attendance, uh, which was really kind of a sellout crowd for us. So we do that every year. We have kind of more uh, informal seminars. Uh, we have a series called The Minds Behind the Mind, which is really a way of translating kind of science into more understandable, popular terms for families. Um, we have a website, which I would encourage uh, your listeners to go to, that has lots of resources for families that we've developed, uh, things like training families and how to try and minimize challenging behaviors that their children may have or how to get them to um, kind of get through kind of milestones like toilet training and the like. And uh, all of that is freely available on our website. And a lot of it is in Spanish as well, since we have such a large Spanish-speaking uh, community here in Northern California. Uh, we also do trainings uh, for professionals so that we can kind of spread what we know and our expertise and make it more widely available. Uh, one, I think, particularly important example is uh, trainings around the Early Start Denver model, which is a, a really uh, one of the most evidence-based comprehensive approaches to early intervention for uh, children affected by autism that was developed by uh, Dr. Sally Rogers here at the Mind Institute. And what she's done in addition to kind of developing the intervention and, and showing how it works and why it works and for whom it works, she's also developed really uh, training procedures so that she can certify, train and certify providers really all over the country and all over the world so that this uh, uh, intervention practice can be uh, available to families everywhere. And then lastly, just as one other example, and this is a kind of a recent example that I'm really uh, very uh, proud about and also kind of hopeful because I think it shows a lot of what the future for the Mind Institute will hold, and that's using technology to really spread the word and, and kind of leverage our expertise. And there's a particular uh, uh, project that we have uh, that started out oh, about a year ago called Project Echo, and uh, there are a number of Project Echoes around the country. Ours started just recently, and ours is designed to basically use uh, telehealth or teleconferencing to create a community of practice where we educate uh, pediatricians and other healthcare providers and how they can better identify um, uh, the possibility of autism in uh, children that they see in their practice and then what to do about it, how to make referrals, what the process is like. It's been a very successful program. We've had, even in this first round, I think we've trained professionals from uh, probably uh, a half a dozen countries in addition to around uh, California. Nevada and other places uh, in how to kind of screen for autism, understand the consequences of autism, and then what to do in terms of referrals. Um, and so uh, I think that's been a really uh, a wonderful addition. And I think technology for us is really kind of the wave of the future. Uh, you know, one of the challenges I think that families have is that if they want to come see us, I mean, it's often difficult if they live, you know, long distance away, particularly if their child doesn't travel very well because of, you know, concerns about changes in routine or challenging behaviors. And so we are increasingly trying to think about how we can bring help and hope to families through technology. And Project Echo is just one example of that. So uh, again, I think technology is kind of the future for us in terms of spreading our expertise. Um, so those are just a few examples. One of the things that I saw was the ability of, of your researchers, the doctors there, to 
be engaged uh, even overseas with a parent and a child and interactive uh, almost real time. Yeah. Can you speak a little uh, bit about that? that yeah so we again I think that's another example of technology and and also it's our commitment to kind of uh, recognizing that there are no boundaries in terms of the needs that families have and certainly in the United States um, although we have a lot of challenges in delivering help and services to families certainly we uh, have a more of a rich infrastructure for that than in many other countries and so we have created a number of partnerships with people all around the world. We have a training program here, the International Training Program in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities, that brings people here to learn about what we do and improve their expertise so that when they go back to their home countries, they can be more effective. But also we create partnerships with them and so that we can kind of have enduring relationships where we're trying to help them create a better infrastructure. Um, and technology is a really uh, important part of that um, and I'll just give you one example. Uh, I recently, in fact, just a few days ago, I spent an hour on the phone with a family from India who had questions about how to really uh, help the communication skills of their daughter uh, who has uh, um, a condition called Fragile X Syndrome, which is an inherited condition that's associated with intellectual disabilities and autism. And we were able to, to I was able to chat with her I was able to talk with the family, um, and then uh, we're also doing coaching in real time of families uh, in a variety of conditions uh, where we watch them, interact with them, and then give them advice as they're interacting with their kids about how they can uh, kind of do other sorts of strategies to help reduce challenging behaviors or to support their language development or support their cognitive development and the like. So I really do think that you know, technology kind of has, has, you know, helps us shrink the world and really extend our expertise. And we've talked about things like concepts like clinics without walls so that we're really thinking about bringing the help to families rather than always having families have to come to us. Uh, and so, I, and again, I think it's a great example where our, our uh, researchers, our clinicians are really committed to helping uh, as many families as they can because we feel that's kind of why we were created by families in the first place. And uh, we really, you know, aren't uh, limited in terms of boundaries or uh, regions or things like that in terms of who, whom we want to help and how we want to do that. This work is just, just tremendous. We're up against a break here, so we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Julie Schweitzer from the Mind Institute at the University of Davis um, uh, Hospital Medical Center. I'm sorry for getting the words all jumbled here. Don't go away. You don't want to miss this next segment. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Sakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. 
Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We are having a conversation today about invisible disabilities, and we are very grateful to have three of the top neuroscience development researchers in the world here from the University of California, Davis, Mind Institute. That's Mind, M-I-N-D. Now, we just heard from Dr. Abedudo, who is the director of the program. He told us a little about the history. Now, we're going to move over to Dr. Julie Schweitzer, who is dealing primarily in the area of ADHD and those type of developmental issues. Dr. Schweitzer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Good. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Tell us about ADHD in layman's terms. There's an awful lot of confusion about this. Yes, I think you exactly stated it well. There's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of myths, so I really appreciate uh, that you're giving me the opportunity to talk about ADHD uh, because, as you said, these are, these are sort of hidden disabilities where the child looks uh, on the surface or the adult with ADHD looks typical, uh, but they may be having challenges that really impact their lives and their family as well. And so in terms of layman's terms, the way we consider ADHD, there are three hallmark symptoms. Uh, you don't need to have all three of these symptoms, but at least one of these symptoms to the point where it's really severely affecting your life, either at home, at school, or at work if you're an adult. Uh, the most classic one is difficulty paying attention. So you may ta- be talking to somebody um, and you're, you're trying to make eye contact with them, but they seem really distractible, or you're giving them instructions and you know you've given it to them one, two, three times and they're still not paying attention to your instructions or they're sitting in a class, um, they seem, just seem to be sort of spaced out. So the inattention is the classic symptom. Hyperactivity is what we see is probably the most observable symptom. So that's somebody who's fidgeting a lot, is having a really hard time sitting still. They may have what seems like boundless energy as well. And as people with ADHD mature, this tends to be more subtle, so they're not running around the room or having difficulty sitting at the dinner table. But in their mind, they may be super active and having uh, and go from topic to topic. Uh, the third symptom associated with ADHD is impulsivity. So that means problems with self-control. So when they're young, they may grab a toy that a playmate is playing with. Um, when they're older, it might be their impulsivity is more verbal in nature, so they interrupt others and so forth. So those are the three classic symptoms uh, that tend to interfere with their lives. Um, and they have to be occurring at a severe degree and, uh, and at a degree that's also developmentally inappropriate for really to be considered ADHD because everybody can experience some of these symptoms at one point or another and not actually have ADHD. So hopefully that helps. It does. It does a great deal. The, you've mentioned how it affects the, uh, the patient th- themselves. Talk about the challenges facing the families and the schools and, and some of the socialization problems. Sure. Well, they're, um, they're very um, complex and they tend to be very broad. Uh, in the school setting, a child with ADHD may have, uh, for kindergartners, preschoolers, difficult time sitting in their circle and they're, and they're in their seat. But also that could be affecting the child sitting next to them because if they're moving around a lot or impulsive, um, they may distract, be distracting to their peers. The teachers can become really frustrated as well because they find that they're spending much of their time uh, working with a child with ADHD and they can be um, feeling frustrated because they're not spending enough time with their peers. The same thing uh, with a parent. They may be feeling if they have more than one child, um, and the child has ADHD, that it's impacting their ability to spend time with the other children and focus on the other children as well. Um, the social relationships and friendships can definitely be affected. Um, people with ADHD sometimes, as I said earlier, they can be impulsive, and so that can affect 
They may be saying things to their friends or their spouse if they're an adult um, that may be hurtful to time without realizing it. For an adult uh, with coworkers, it may be the same thing, uh, that they may not be following through on their projects or saying things out of turn. And if they're not following through on their projects and procrastinating, that can be negatively affect the business as well. Now, I don't want to tell the negative, though, um, because I've been fortunate that I've, I've worked with some people who did have very severe ADHD symptoms, but they had some compensatory skills, and uh, they had grit, perhaps, or they may be very bright, and they've also been able to um, not have these uh, problems interfere, but instead use them in some sense. So, um, whereas ADHD can definitely lead to worse outcomes, and I can go into more in depth about that, I can also say that I've seen for some people with ADHD, if they're aware of it, um, and they're sensitive to what those in their environment are experiencing, uh, they can also achieve great success. Um, so I don't want to tell be negative because I think it's important for parents and adults with ADHD to have some hope as well. Absolutely. I was involved with a, a, a grade school in the Elk Grove Unified School District, and we gave them a grant uh, to get some equipment for uh, children, and, and particularly with the ADHD, fidget toys and bouncing things. Go a little yeah. bit into that, Dr. Schweitzer, about what yeah. teachers uh, can do to um, limit the, the distractions. Right. Well, I think it really has to be um, individualized. So we, we joke about an ADHD. If you've seen one person with ADHD, you've seen one person with ADHD because there, there's a, quite a bit of variability from child to child or adult to adult with ADHD. Uh, but we, you mentioned the fidgeting, and we've actually had some research a few years ago where we showed that when children with ADHD are moving, that actually helps them think better. And so instead of thinking of, at this fidgeting and the hyperactivity as a negative, in some sense it can also be probably some sort of um, unconscious compensatory sort of thing that they're doing to help them focus. And it helps increase alertness. Um, and so we're actually uh, looking at a study right now where we're trying to see what happens when you do give somebody um, fidget devices or fidget tools. Now, you have to be careful because some of these fidget uh, tools can be more distracting. And then not mm-hmm. just distracting to the person with ADHD, but also to their peers. So we're trying to develop some with, with a colleague of mine at UC Santa Cruz um, where these are the sort of thing that they're not... Um, they're not noisy. Um, they don't make. A, they're not so flashy that again it would be distracting. Uh, but we're trying to figure out whether or not this can actually help um, people with ADHD. But we suspect it might de- depend on the individual and so forth. Um, in the classroom, there's lots of things that need to be done beyond that as well. Um, really good old-fashioned behavior therapy, where um, the person with ADHD receives a lot of uh, reinforcement for being on task. Uh, because ultimately people with ADHD, uh, they um, have a hard time waiting for rewards. So if you can provide immediate rewards as much as possible. And so when they're performing their work, when they're answering their questions, when they're doing um, what they need to do in the classroom at the time or with their homework, that's going to help them to stay on, on task as well. Um, you want to make sure that your instructions are really clear. You don't want to give multiple instructions at a time to somebody with ADHD. The other thing about the classroom that's really important is about one-third of kids with ADHD also have learning disabilities. Um, so you'll want to test if somebody has a reading disability or a math uh, disability. And if so, then the reading and math disability can make it even more challenging for the person with ADHD in the classroom. And there's different interventions uh, for reading and math uh, int- uh, disabilities as well. But you want to be sensitive to that because that can certainly interfere with one's ability uh, to be productive. But a lot of it also is organization and helping the person with ADHD become more organized, um, working with them to set deadlines, calendars, reminders, and so forth, particularly as they mature and they're expected to become more independent in the classroom. Um, and certainly a number of our individuals go on to college. Um, it's the same thing in the college setting. You want to make sure that they're set up for success. Um, they know how and where to reach out for help. But a lot of that is around organization, uh, becoming independent. And we talk a lot about ADHD being, ADHD being really a developmental disorder. So thinking about uh, what might work for the um, college student, a typical college student uh, might need more reinforcement uh, and more um, robust kind of approach. 
with a uh, 18 year old or 19 year old with ADHD more similar in some ways to what you would uh, expect for um, a high school student and so forth. And the same with middle school, it's more almost like more like an elementary school student and that um, changing classes and so forth and having uh, to take books from class to class may be more challenging. So you have to bring in more um, support for them and more scaffolding and so forth. There, there has to be, uh, and I'm going to get the term wrong here, but with the schools, they have to make accommodations like you would with a disability in the workplace. Exactly. Now, can schools, can schools come to you and uh, and get some input as to how to how best to address this? Definitely. So many of our um, children with ADHD have what we call 504 plans. Occasionally, they have IEPs or individualized educational plans, uh, but these plans. Um, help lay out what the accommodations are. Again, it really needs to be individualized depending upon the the, uh, person with ADHD, what their challenges are. Uh, But oftentimes it will be that uh, there's help about organization um, and providing rewards, making it really clear and salient um, when somebody does something right. So, for example, one of the most common issues with ADHD is that um, even if they do their homework, they forget to turn it in. Um, so maybe what the person with ADHD needs is a reminder about turning in their homework um, and then giving a reward when they, they actually do it as well. So that's one way. Um, the other thing that I really think uh, is important to talk about that isn't, hasn't really been noticed until recently with ADHD is that there's a lot of challenges with emotional functioning. Um, and I think we're recognizing, particularly in girls with ADHD, that that has been overlooked for a long time. So I would hope that teachers and parents are becoming more sensitive to those issues. So we're actually finding uh, girls with ADHD have a higher rate of suicidal intent and actual um, suicide attempts. And so this is a really tragic issue. Uh, They have a much more difficult time regulating their emotions and so forth. It might be more irritable. And certainly teachers uh, might be more likely to pick up on these challenge, these issues. Um, so it's not just difficulty paying attention and following through with homework and so forth. Um, but if they're being uh, bullied on social media and so forth, uh, we want, really want people to be alert to those issues, that that can also be problematic uh, for our, our people with ADHD and, um, and to be, um, as I said, to have a lookout for that um, and raise that to uh, attention and bring. So support might not just be in terms of traditional behavioral support, but also emotional support and thinking about counseling for that as well. Um, Would it be okay if I talked a little about the risk-taking issues? Sure, absolutely. That's that's as as I do a lot of research um, with adolescents, and adolescence is associated in general with risk-taking problems, but with ADHD, it's really really much more intensely magnified. Um, So not just higher suicide rates, there's also much higher automobile accident rates, there's also a greater use of um, an abuse of alcohol, drug abuse. Uh, they have a higher rate of um, first pregnancy at a younger age um, and so forth. So there's these other associated issues that not just affect the individual with ADHD, but it affects the family and it affects society as well. And so really when we're talking about ADHD, you have to take this developmental perspective and as one matures, think about what are the challenges they might be experiencing. And when we're in the adolescent phase, it's really looking at um, poor decision-making and these challenges that can come about that have really long-term, potentially very serious uh, negative impact on the individuals. Um, So I don't want to say, again, it's all negative because adolescence is also a great time for growth and learning. It's when our brains are actually growing the most uh, and we're the the sharpest in some ways. Um, And so people with ADHD can also be very creative and they can have novel ideas. Um, And this is an opportunity to think about how can you engage somebody who has ADHD and harness really um, their creativity um, and and, um, innovation and have them think about what are some good decisions that they could be making and that have positive long-term outcomes as well. It's finding what what catches their interest. We in, in a nonprofit I'm working with in Arizona, we have a young man who is severely ADHD, but he has a gift for music, and he can oh, create yes. music. And we're finding him um, opportunities in that sector, which is working out very, very well. 
That's great. I love hearing that because I, I've been thinking about myself, about when I listen um, to people who are really good with doing um, improvisational music, such as jazz, um, I think some of them may be, um, you know, they're, they're, um, they're on, the fact that they are quick thinkers and so forth might actually help them in some sense. I also really like hearing when comedians talk about their childhood because I'm convinced that probably at least half, if not more, of uh, stand-up comedians probably had ADHD as children. Um, and that the fact that they were unfiltered as children may have been a huge um, distraction for the teachers, but their classmates probably loved it because they entertained the class. Um, and so if you can find ways um, to use the, the quick thinking and so forth where it doesn't become an impediment, but again, it leads to people thinking new ways and ideas. And as you said, if you can help somebody find their passion, um, and I find that people with, who have ADHD and have grit, the people who have ADHD but are also persistent, can be in the long run people who can be the most, uh, the greatest contributors to our society. So I've been, I've been fortunate enough to meet oh, and work with some people like that. And um, these have been people who have been trailblazers. So they were oftentimes fortunate. Maybe um, they were financially well off already. So they had people who could help them deal with the day-to-day distractions that maybe was not their strong suit. Uh, but these tended to be people who were more visionary uh, and they could use their imagination and so forth to help them. Uh, but they had people who were there also there to help remind them to take their medication or um, really dealt with the, um, the sort of day-to-day tasks that were less interesting to them in some source. But like you said, um, helping people find their passion can make a big difference for the person with ADHD. It's interesting your comment about the comedians. The one that jumps to everyone's mind immediately is Robin Williams. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You must exactly. have been a real. Many of them talk about their childhood and how. Um, I just heard one yesterday actually, um, and he was saying about how he was in an honors class, um, but he was the cut up. So, but he he uh, got to the point where he was successful. But that's unfortunately that's rare. Um, yes. I, I'm also concerned that a number of our people in the prison system also have ADHD. Um, that, and these that's are absolutely true. Have, so that's, that's, I mean, I don't want to put a, a too rosy picture on it because the majority of people, unfortunately, especially if they have a co-occurring learning disability, um, the outcomes are not as great. And particularly if they start abusing drugs and alcohol and so forth, it definitely lowers their chances uh, for success. Well, we went through another segment faster than you could possibly imagine here. We're going to have to take another short break here. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with the Mind Institute with Dr. Judy Vanderwater. Don't go away. You do not want to miss this next segment. You're listening to Life-Altering Events on the VoiceAmerica.com Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. 
Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We have been having, we've had two just amazing segments dealing with the University of California at Davis, Mind Institute. Now, these people, if you have never dealt with the Mind Institute, you need to get involved. Because as I said in the opening, if you do not believe that angels walk among us on this earth, then you have never been involved with the Mind Institute. Our third segment is Dr. Judy Vanderwater. Dr. Vanderwater is the Associate Director of the, of the Mind Institute. And Dr. Vanderwater, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell the listeners, I've heard you speak before, but tell the listeners in layman's terms about your investigation with the maternal immune system as it relates to autism spectrum. Now, that's a lot of words that a lot of people don't understand. So explain that for well, us. Well, I'm happy to do my best. <laughs> so I think... Uh, one thing that is a little bit unusual is I'm I'm a trained immunologist. That means I study the immune system, and and most of us know the immune system for what it does when we have a cold or flu and we fight off infection. But what we now know is that the immune system of the mother during pregnancy actually plays a very important role in how the fetus develops, and we now understand that the development of the the neuronal system or the brain and the nervous system is dependent on a healthy immune system of the mother. And so this is rather new way of thinking about how um, the fetus's brain develops. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that makes that different is we think about what happens when the mother gets sick during pregnancy because we know that there there's, we might get a fever, we might feel sick, and, and I think it's really important to understand that just because we get sick does not mean something is going to happen to our baby, but there might be a small percentage of women who, when they mount an immune response or when they respond to an infectious agent or when they, when they get the flu or um, during pregnancy, is a very low percent that may have negative consequences on the fetus. And actually, this work first started in, in schizophrenia um, because of the high percentage of cases of women having the flu during um, a first or second trimester of pregnancy and then going on to have a child with schizophrenia. So this is not a new idea, but it was a little bit new for autism. And related to that, is what happens when a woman's immune system, instead of recognizing these foreign agents, such as a virus or a bacteria, starts recognizing proteins that they have within themselves or in their fetus. And, and so this is a large part of our work now, is as we look at both inflammation during pregnancy, but we also look at a consequence of that inflammation could be the production of antibodies, which normally would block or fight a bacteria or virus, and these antibodies now are recognizing proteins in the cell. And so we call this autoimmunity or autoantibodies, and we're starting to see that this may be one way in about 20 to 26% of cases that a woman might end up with a child on the autism spectrum. Wow. Is this something that if, if identified early could be treated while the child is still uh, in development? In pregnancy? Well, that is, that is, of course, our end goal, right? Is, is The first part was recognizing it. And it's important to remember that this is not, first of all, there's nothing that somebody can do to prevent this from happening necessarily, um, much like you couldn't prevent getting systemic lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. But 
Um, it's also something that is not fetal-based. So we can actually test before the woman even gets pregnant, come up with a plan to then hopefully block these. And then that is, of course, one of the areas that we are heavily in, um, involved in research on our side is understanding what we could do, what what exact proteins or, you know, parts of the um, fetal developing brain these antibodies are recognizing, and how do we come up with a safe, effective mechanism to block those? Now, could this be a test that uh, a doctor does uh, on, on, a, on a woman uh, pre-pregnancy or as soon as they discover they're pregnant? I, I think the current plan for for taking this forward in, and developing this as a potential clinical test is to focus on the preconception because we can, because it's not fetal-based, unlike Down syndrome, which is, is based on the fetus itself. This is completely based on the, maternal's, the um, maternal immune system or, you know, what's going on in the mother, and we don't need a fetus to do that. Mm-hmm. So it makes it, it, which is much more, you know, I think that it's much more palatable to do that. But the other thing is we can use this postnatally for very, very early diagnosis. You could, as soon as that child's born, you could have that test and then know what early interventions might be effective. Wow. So that's our current plan is uh, <laughs> to understand, yes, to create a, a, we call it a risk, a test, you know, because it rules in that you will have a child with autism because at this point we're dealing with 100% specificity, meaning we don't see any mothers who have typically developing children with these antibodies. But you could still have a child with autism by another mechanism, as we know there are several ways to have a child on the spectrum. This is this is amazing that we, we, the science is getting that deep that we can almost project or predict. It almost sounds like it's a predictive model. Is that am I correct? Yes, that's that's exactly what we're dealing with. Is a a way to predict the risk of having a child with autism. As we de- and as we develop this, we, we of course will learn more, and and we have animal models that we use to to mimic what we see in the um, human situation, and that allows us to both understand what's going on in in the brain as it develops in the presence of these antibodies, but also how we can potentially block that. And it's very interesting. It, it's 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 almost unbelievable. For those of you who are listening out there, this is something when you understand the, the, how these, these neurological disorders have, have grown so rapidly and you get someone like Dr. Vanderwater who's helping with a predicting, predictive on um, what the potential of something like this is, at least you're going in with more awareness of what, what could potentially be happening. Is that correct? Right. Good. Correct. <laughs> and, and I think... Um, so as I talked, as I began our conversation, I was talking about inflammation during pregnancy, which is also another area of um, increasing risk of having a child with a neurodevelopmental disorder, whether it's autism or now we know schizophrenia, you know, falls into this category. And I think each of these, as we move forward, we can start to think about, okay, what, how, what are modifiable risk factors? And by that, I mean, what could we do to reduce the risk in, in these women as they're thinking about having a child or as they're going through a pregnancy? One of the things that we know that is associated with these, these antibodies in women is diabetes, hypertension, uh, hypertensive disorders, what we call metabolic syndrome, or being... Um, overweight during pregnancy. So those seem to be factors. Those are factors that we can modify to help reduce risk. So these are the, this is the sort of work that we do here is, is looking at the big, the whole picture of how to have a healthy pregnancy, you know, including diet, but also um, looking at what we hope can be modifiable risk factors in the future. That's excellent. We have about three minutes, Dr. Vandwater. You also do some additional uh, research that you had mentioned in the board meeting. Would you like to touch on some of that? 
Um, sure. So we, while this is our most mature and our one of our largest projects here, we also are working in children, and we look at what is going on in, in um, the children themselves. And we had a Center for Children's Environmental Health here, and that was a big area of research for us until the, they, those have sort of changed now in, in what they look like, but we continue working here on what happens with certain exposures, both either during pregnancy or in the child themselves, that may change how their immune system functions and how that relates to the um, health and development of that child. Um, we're looking at factors such as Oh, I don't know, what we call persistent organic pollutants. We're looking at air pollution, both during pregnancy and in early childhood, all sorts of, of environmental factors that may play a role in what happens during development of the fetus, but also during early child health. Um, some of the other things where we get way down deep into the cells sometimes, which is far more, I think, than the audience is interested in. But we really are trying to understand what's going on inside the cells of these kids that are on the spectrum that may be different from our typically developing children, um, control children and how, how we can eventually potentially modify. So, for example, we look at, <clears throat> in our animal models, we look at the brains after they've been exposed to certain things, and we look at the downstream, we call downstream, so the effects in, in the brain of all the different pathways that we look at. And by doing that, we might find a pathway that we can eventually use to treat um, and the children that have been affected through that pathway. This is amazing. We are just about out of time. This show has gone by way too fast. For those of you who want more information about the Mind Institute, please send me a message. Go to the voiceamerica.com website, life-altering events. Press uh, email the host, and I will make sure this information gets over to the Mind Institute. We have been so fortunate to have Dr. Leonard Abadudo, Dr. Julie Schweitzer, and most recently here, Dr. Judy Vanderwater as our guest getting into this area of neurological disorders and disabilities. Uh, they're growing at a, at, a, at a rate that is frightening, and it has to stop. And these are the people who are going to get us there. So, Dr. Vanderwater, thank you very much. Absolutely. We are my pleasure. Almost out, my pleasure. We're almost out of time. Remember this. No matter what life throws at you, look up, get up, and never, ever give up. Pick up the pieces and start moving forward, and what you're going to find is better times and better people will come into your life. You can listen to this show, any part of it, or any of our shows on a number of different on-demands, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or at my website, franksakari.com, by pressing the media tab. Join us again next week, and we'll discuss another life-altering event. And let me leave you with this, the secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Life Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life changing week. The Good Kind.